Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Faye. I'm joined by Sue Wilton and Peter Cat. Thanks for making time as always, guys. Hey, Dom. Uh, and today we are we're delving into a heavy but incredibly necessary topic on the On The Way podcast. We're joined by Steve Smith, a survivor of sexual abuse in the church in the 1970s. Thank you for your time, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh Obviously, the sexual abuse epidemic in the church um, is probably the biggest black mark that the church has had in the past few hundred years. It's uh, something that's so abhorrent to even think about what's happened that it's quite hard to, to wrap your mind around from from someone who hasn't, I guess, had first-hand experience. So I think as a starting point, Steve, if you're happy to share your story, I suppose, as to, to what happened to you, um, that might be a, a good place to start the discussion. Okay, it's... Um Basically, my family was heavily involved with the Anglican Church in the Newcastle Diocese. Um, my mum was a church organist. My dad was a church warden and did all the maintenance work around the church. And we were based, we lived in an area of the Western Lake Macquarie. And our family had a, a fairly special relationship with the priests of the parish. Um, and and I recall as a young man, I was talking only talking to my wife and, and to Reverend Tiff about this this morning. Um, one of my fondest memories is um, we we had a rector who was a, an ex tradesman and a, and a fairly strong advocate for social justice and the like. And I can remember as a young kid, we'd sit in the backyard. They'd have Sunday lunch with us. We'd sit in the backyard, and I'd listen to my dad and my grandfather and this particular rector. Um, well, Neville Sport was his name. Ne- Neville, great guy. Um, and I'd sit and listen to these guys talking politics and unionism and and what have you, and, and it, it sort of was the glue that stuck all my beliefs together. Really, and just as a young man, I was just in awe of these guys. And of course, priests move on as they do, and we we got a new priest, and um, this guy turned up, and he was a, he's a much younger priest and very charismatic man, and and uh, much loved by the by the people within the in the parish and I was approaching the age where I was able to be an altar boy and of course that was an aim for all of us I think was that was to be part of the church and have an important part and mum was pretty keen on all that and so I um I did the altar boy training and became an altar boy at the age of 10 and one of the first services that I did were in the vestry getting changed and and Parker, George Parker, grabbed me and, and sexually assaulted me. And I was told by him that this was a secret and he was my special friend and this would really hurt my family if I said anything. <clears throat> so that set the tone then for the next four years, I guess. Um, I was raped repeatedly by Parker over those four years. Every opportunity, he would come and get me out of school um, on the pretest, he'd, he'd arrive at my school and say there was a funeral. He needed an altar boy, and they would just let me go with him. Um, and of course, I always knew what was going to happen, but there's nothing I could do about it. So this went on until I was 14, and <clears throat> um, pretty much on a weekly basis, there was every opportunity he got, he'd take me away. There was another. A priest that was a good friend of his that used to hang around a bit was Peter Rushton, that that um, people would be aware of. Um, he was often in our house as well, sort of surrounded by these guys, and I used to have to suffer the indignity of of, of being going to church, serve on the altar, get raped by Parker, and then he'd come to our family home and have lunch with us, and sit at the table, and and um, sit across from me, and uh, and I'd just have to sit there and cop that which was very difficult. Um, but the the, the um, light at the end of the tunnel eventually appeared that, that Parker was being moved to another parish. And my thoughts were, thank goodness, that's when he's gone, he's gone. I'm, I've got an out here. Um, and it, it was getting to the point where on Sunday mornings, I used to get up early before mum would wake up and I'd go bush, I'd shoot through. And I, I sort of, it was a, a calculated decision because I knew that when I got home, I wouldn't come home till the afternoon, till the church and lunch and all that sort of business was finished and I knew he was gone. Um, and I'd get a backhander for my trouble um, for, for 
bringing shame to the family is, is how the, the thing was. Like you've run away and you haven't done what you've committed to. And, you know, anyway, Parker's moved off to another parish and he'd only been there. We went out to his installation as the parish priest and stood in the aisle, in the pews and, and I watched all that. And there was this sense of relief within me that we were rid of him. Well, it was the following Saturday, <clears throat> um, my younger brother and I walked into the house and mum said to us, pack your bags. Um, you're going over to Father George's place. And I looked at it in disbelief and it's like, why? Because he hasn't got any altar boys there and he needs altar boys for tomorrow morning service. It's an important service. And you guys will be sleeping over at his house and helping him with the service in the morning. So I was horrified. Um, but I did what I was told and I went there that night. But I think I'd already made up my mind that I was going to tell mum what was going on. Um, so we went there that night. The, the usual thing happened. We'd um, we stopped and I remember this so clearly. We stopped and got um, fried chicken on the way home, and we got back to the rectory. And um, he got out some big glasses and filled them full of wine. And my brother at this point was ten and a half, so he's tipping wine into us. Um, come bedtime. <laughs> He, he attempted to rape me again and I actually fought him off like I was determined this was finished so I forced it pushed him away and forced him away and unbeknown to me he moved on then to my younger brother that night I didn't know that at the time um, but the next morning we went and did the service and well, my brother and I went back to the rectory and used the telephone to ring my mum to come and get us and on the way home I said to mum there's something I need to tell you and so I started disclosing and mum said stop and wait till we got home and we parked in the driveway and the younger brother got out of the car and I told mum what was going on <clears throat> and mum was distraught and because they loved this guy they thought he was the bee's knees and, and many many people did thought he was the, the duck's guts um, so mum went to see the bishop at some point mum never ever spoke to me about this ever again just as a matter of interest there was never a discussion we had again mum died not that long after but but we never discussed this again but it's come to light that she went to see the bishop who was Chevel at the time and um, Chevel dismissed her I believe um, didn't want to know about it and um, that was pretty much the end of that I went to the police in 1977 and the police officer I talked to, and I know I still know his name, um, told me to go and talk to a priest. That was the advice I got from the New South Wales Police. My life rolled on. Um, Parker was out of my life. Mum had died. Um, the, the, the absolute insult that the, the church managed to deliver to our family was um, when mum died suddenly and young, and we walked into the church for mum's funeral, into our church. And the priest conducting the funeral was George Parker. The church had sent him to conduct my mother's funeral. And I, it's, it's something I'll never forget, walking into the church and seeing mum's coffin up at the, up at, towards at the front of the altar and George Parker standing behind the coffin. And I was just horrified. I just didn't know what to do. And I was that upset, obviously, because mum had died. It was bad enough. But to have the life scared out of me by him as well, just him being there. And one of my worst memories of that is actually dad. my dad announced at that point that myself and my brothers were to be the pallbearers to carry mum out of the church. <clears throat> and um, I remember Parker walked in front of us and I was at the head of the coffin and um, I was just terrified I was going to drop mum. I was that distraught and that scared. And that horrified that he was there. It's probably one of the worst experiences. It was bad enough that we were burying mum, but but to have her funeral sullied by his presence was just was just appalling. Anyway, life rolled on. Um, <clears throat> I said I'd been to the police. Was told to go and see a priest, which wasn't particularly helpful. Um, by the time the early eighties appeared, I was a wreck 
Like I just wasn't coping, suicidal. Um, and, and again, with the help of some friends, I was in that bad state. I ended up admitting myself to a psych hospital. I just wasn't coping at all. Spent about six weeks there, just trying to gather myself and, and get some control back in my life. Did you tell them what had happened? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was... Um, and again, they... I stayed that long because they said I should stay that long because I was in such a state. Um, I could have left if I wanted to, but I actually didn't want to because I felt quite safe, um, which sounds really strange, hanging around a psych hospital, but it felt like a safe place to me. Um, by... I married in 1984. Um, the only time I'd seen Parker since was in 1984. I was in a shopping centre and he walked towards me. and he, I don't know that if he saw me, but I saw him. And I actually ran out and it was in, in a Kmart supermarket and I ran out and hid in the car and, and was just terrified that, that he would see me. Um, marriage was... For early years were pretty good but sort of I was a, I was still a wreck um, and I would have been very hard to live with I'd imagine um, 84 was the first time that I did actually approach the church and I we as we, we well it's well documented the, the incidents with, with Bishop Appleby where I went to Appleby and told him what had happened um, this was all raised in the Royal Commission. Appleby denied that he'd met me, but his diary indicated that, that he had in fact met me when I said he did. Um, <clears throat> nothing was done. Um, my marriage was falling apart um, and I stumbled through life. got three beautiful kids and as a blessing. Um, by 19... By the mid-90s, I decided that I couldn't, just couldn't cope with this. I had to do something about it. And when, that's when I first, oh, after Appleby in 84, I approached. And I talked to a Catholic priest, and Peter might be aware of the circumstance. The Vince Ryan stuff was fairly topical in Newcastle. And I actually talked to a, to a Catholic priest, um, Bob Searle, who um, advised me that, there was a helpline available within the Anglican Church because these things, again, were becoming um, more public. So I um, <clears throat> so I contacted this Anglican helpline and um, the person I got on the other end was Graeme Lawrence, dean, the de who was then the Dean of Newcastle and has since been charged with child sex offences. Um, so... I talked to Graham Lawrence and was told that this had all be dealt with and what have you. And again, nothing happened. 1999, I did it again. Um, nothing happened. Nothing was done. Parker, I, what, I actually was watching Parker's career at that point, and at one, he was assistant dean to Lawrence at one point at the cathedral during those years. I think that was presented at the Royal Commission. That evidence, um, I was unaware of that. Um, by 2000, I decided I was going to the police again. So I was living in Port Macquarie and I went to the police and made a complaint. They took a statement. Parker was charged. Um, had the committal hearing. We got into court in Newcastle in the district court in September 2001. Um, the, it was a debacle. Um, the judge was um, Ralph Coolahan. Um he, his opening statements were that I was a disgrace. Um, it was truly ridiculous that after all these years, this man had been dragged into court to answer these charges. Um, so we got pretty well slapped around before we even started. Did the judge have links to the church? Or? He, he the, Coolahan had acted as counsel for the Anglican Church in some professional or um, panel of triers matters. So Coolahan did have connections within any... I'm in the process at the moment. I've asked for an apology from the Attorney-General's Department and they refuse to give it. They won't give me an apology. Um, and the, the Coolahan's comments have been well documented. Any any person I've, that have seen it have just been absolutely outraged at what he said and how much that prejudiced 
us before we even started. Um, my father gave evidence, my brother gave evidence, I gave evidence. Um, Parker was defended by the instructing solicitor was Keith Allen, who was a trustee of the diocese. The barrister was Paul Rosser, who was the bishop's chancellor. Um, that the Royal Commission has accepted those people should never have been involved in the matter. Um, so we went through a few, oh, some days of, of hearings and then a register was produced which conflicted with some of the evidence I'd given about dates and times and what have you. So the DPP made the decision to withdraw. So the matter was no build and Parker was discharged. Um, that register, just as a matter of interest, the Royal Commission looked at that and as, as a fairly high likelihood that those entries were falsified in that register. Um, and the police have accepted that. They can't quite work out who did it, but... Um, so the matter with the charges were withdrawn, it was no build. Um, the Anglican Diocese of Newcastle, in its wisdom, wrote an article in their Anglican Encounter newspaper, uh, headline confusion over false action. So they decided that a month after this thing was withdrawn, that they would give us a kicking to go with it. Um, and, the, and the end statement was um, while Father Parker can not comprehend the actions of his accusers he bears them no ill will which was really comforting for us he didn't bear us any ill will uh, so that was actually a turning point for me I'd walked out of court in Port Macquarie in 2000 in Newcastle rather I apologise in on the day the trial finished was 9-11 day of 9-11 so the world was in turmoil I can remember standing on the corner of the Grand Hotel opposite the um, Newcastle Courthouse and looking at George Parker, Paul Rosser and Graham Lawrence standing on the steps laughing at us. And it was one of, probably one of the darkest moments of my life. And I remember going back home to where I lived in Port Macquarie with my hands in the air. It's just, I can't beat these people. This is just a disaster. Then I read the Anglican Encounter. Well, the Anglican Encounter article was contained in the October edition and to make sure I read it, Graham Lawrence actually signed a copy of that and pushed it under my father's door at the retirement village where he lived. And I still have that, that copy of the Anglican Encounter. And Lawrence signed the thing and shoved it under the door. And anyway, my dad came to Port Macquarie. My dad was unwell at the time. But he ended up in Port Macquarie and he showed it to me. He said, mate, you've got to read this. And I read it and that lit the fire. I said, you blokes want to fight? I'm going to give you a fight. And... Um, we went on from there and, um, well, all the rest history, I suppose. I agitated, agitated. I finally got an apology out of Brian Farron, Bishop Farron, in 2010. Um, Michael Elliott became professional standards director and Michael approached me in 2009 with, the, as luck would have it, the register. He was confused about how that all happened. And he found me and asked me to explain it to him. So I sort of formed a bit of an alliance with Michael. <laughs> and we fought on then and I agitated for the for the Royal Commission and I'd actually written to every prime or I've written to every Prime Minister since Gough Whitlam to um get a Royal Commission or an inquiry of some sort insta like set up. Um the only person that ever replied to me was Gillard, Julia Gillard. None of the others bothered. Um and again, the rest history. We had case study 42 where all this matter was exposed of what had been going on in the Newcastle Diocese. Um, the police set up a strike force and Detective Sergeant Jeff Little ran that. It was Strike Force Arrhenia 2. Um, he investigated. Fresh statements were taken. The charges that had been withdrawn from Parker in 2001 were reinstated and he got another 20 added on top, another 20 charges. And on the 23rd of December 2016, they travelled to Ballarat and charged Parker with those offences and three weeks later, Parker died. So we went from the, the high, and that sounds really tacky, but the high of the charges being reinstated, it was a win, to then he died. And that was the end of that. Um, we'd been through the Royal Commission process I was thoroughly vindicated in the Royal Commission process. My evidence was accepted above others. Um, 
and that's where we find ourselves now i guess is that um my campaign now or my motive now is to encourage people who have been abused to come forward and not for any other reason other than their initially for their well-being because i know there are people who haven't come forward who are struggling um, who need to talk to their families or talk to their doctor or talk to the police or talk to the church it doesn't really matter who you need to talk to someone Mm. and that's how I find myself here today. I mean, there's, it's hard to really say anything after hearing that story. It's um, quite staggering to think that would happen. Obviously, there's so many accounts of these, these things happening, but it's still quite staggering to hear it. I'm interested in... You mentioned that, that George Parker also assaulted your brother. Um, I'm interested in when you found out about that, and I suppose what that has been like with you and your brother. The first I knew of that, um, I went to the police in 2000 and made my statement. And the only reason my brother was ever involved was that the police contacted him to corroborate the fact of where we'd been at that rectory and and, and what have you. And and my brother rang me. The police contacted him and he rang me and said, um, I've just had the police the cops talking to me blah 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 and um and he sort of and i said yeah okay so everything all right he said um you know he got me too and i didn't know that um and it broke my heart um and my relationship with him actually has been (laughs) a bit of a, a, a roller coaster since then um we went through the court process when the trial in 2001 fell over um, there were a lot of fingers getting pointed about whose fault it was that it didn't proceed. Um, there was also the the um, the view that we were going through an enormous amount of trauma at that point, and if I hadn't have gone to the police, that wouldn't have happened. Um, so again, there was a lot of blame. So my brother and I became estranged. Um, the next contact we had um, realistically was Dad's funeral in two thousand five where we had a, a fairly unpleasant disagreement, I guess. And I had no further contact with my brother until during the Royal Commission and, and again, Detective Sergeant Jeff Little, who had been dealing with both of us. Um, I walked out of the Royal Commission one day and he said, hey, there's a bloke on the phone who wants to talk to you. And it was my brother. And um, we hadn't talked at that point for, I don't know, 13 years, I suppose. Or eight, oh, yeah, probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years. And um, so we started communicating again and, and fortunately um, he's been able now to get the help that he needed as, as well. We're still not close and I doubt we ever will be. Um, there's a bit too much um, pain involved, I think. To like, I think I remind him of it and he probably reminds me of it. But he's, he's, he's the church have, have dealt with him and, and he's got the, um, the help that he needed, so I'm grateful for that. And um, I just hope that he's well. Like, I just hope that he's well. And what about your your dad? Uh, when did he become aware of it? And, and, and what was he like for you throughout the process? Dad dad and I... was almost... Mum told Dad at the time. Um, is, that's my understanding. And Dad... I'm really not sure of the dynamic, how that all worked... Um, but I know that it, during the 80s, Dad and I would discuss this. Like, we had this shed relationship where I'd, Dad had remarried and I didn't get on with my stepmother, but I would go around to my dad's and meet him in the shed. And Well, that's where Dad always was, in the shed. And we'd sit there and have a beer and talk about these things. Dad had the view that um, you sort of you can't change what happened. That was his his thing, and I think he was fairly... Um, apprehensive about proceeding with it because of his new wife and and the public image. Dad, very well known in in the suburb we lived in, and and um, Parker's popularity was still a huge issue. Um, people thought the sun shone out of this guy, <coughs> and um, well, that's my understanding of how it was with Parker anyway. 
Um, and it, it really, when I went to the police in 2000, they actually got a statement out of Dad and, and Dad gave evidence to the effect that, that he was aware of what had happened. But um, it's always been a really, until Dad died, it was always a really complex issue between him and I. Um, and I don't think my family as a whole understood why I was pursuing this, why I was agitating for resolution. Um, and I think a lot of people still don't understand that, that why you would um, do this to yourself. Mm. But there was never there was never a question of it for me. It had to be dealt with. What has your relationship with, I suppose, oh, I don't want to say the church, maybe even just a faith life in general been like since then? Has Has there been any relationship or is that... Was that severed, do you think, irreparably? Um, that's a, it's another complex thing for me. It's one of those things where I want a faith, um, but I just can't seem to get my hands on it. Um, and, and it's a, a really funny thing, um, and just some recent examples. My wife and I were only married in, um, this, in November 2017, um, we had Greg Thompson, Bishop Greg Thompson, speak at our funeral. He was going to conduct the funeral, but there was a licensing issue. Um, so Greg spoke at our funeral. Peter Stewart was at our at uh, funeral wedding, rather. Um, Peter Stewart was at our wedding. Um, I consider Peter Stewart a good friend. Um, Greg Thompson's a good friend. Um, and in your Brisbane diocese, I've become very firm friends with Tiff, Tiffany Sparks. Um, I think she's amazing. Um, so there's this whole contradiction thing with me that there's people within the church that I think are just incredible. Um, I have the this is a really funny thing for me. I have the greatest respect for the church and what the church does, like social justice, like helping people. Um, but I, there's also mixed mixed with this disgust at the leadership of the church in Newcastle, particularly in my case that allowed this to, to go on when it could have been dealt with, in my matter, back in 1975. And the other thing that sticks in my mind in regard to that is, like, Parker was able to continue in the priesthood for over 40 years after the church was aware of what he'd done. Um, was there others? Obviously there would have been. Um, but my relationship with the church is a... Um, it's a really complex thing for me. It's... Um, it's something I really struggle with. It's something I really want. But again, I just can't seem to find where I fit. Mm. I might ask you this, Peter. After hearing that story, and I'm sure you've heard many, too many like it, how does this happen? How? What? What are the structural, the maybe theological, because I think that's the question a lot of people have when stories like this are told, is this, the church was meant to be, you know, the the promoters of love and goodwill and unity and compassion. How the hell does this happen? Yeah, and it's supposed to be the place where the weak find safety and and as Steve was just saying, you know, all the stuff we do in social justice is advocating for that. And then in our internal life, sometimes we get it... Um, very wrong and I think I think there are some structural issues that enable that and part of I mean part of it was that you know, George Parker and priests like him uh, belonged to the father knows best age um, and uh, that creates a, a hierarchy of power I mean I, th I think I think I think there is a hierarchy in the church that can be really quite beneficial, and but it's a hierarchy that's based on servanthood, and self-giving, and um, ordering the life of the church. So having having people who keep the Eucharistic community together, as priests do, and as bishops are supposed to keep the whole of the church together, uh, those that part of the hierarchy is really essential and life-giving and. And I think that's part of the part of the clue in that um, you know the word authority at its heart uh, means to give life, 
authority, author, that which gives life to something. And so when, when those who have authority use it, use it to bring life to individuals and to the whole, then they're exercising their authority well. Um, but authority, authority can become corrupted and it can become a power thing. And so Father Knows Best idea was that the priest was unsaleable, unassailable. They were uncontradict. You couldn't contradict them, um, and you couldn't question them, and they were a, a beyond reproach. So you know that's that's why the police used to defend the clergy. You know, the, the, and and there was a sense in which the priests were also supposed to live into that. And if they had, then it wouldn't have been as dreadful. But but when you give power like that, power corrupts. I mean, it's as simple as that. And so because, because we, at various times in the life of the church, have lost that idea that authority is about giving life and sacrificially giving to the community, um, the power corrupts. It's, mm. It doesn't matter who has power. If people, if people have or take power, then it corrupts them. And the church is supposed to be the community where all of that power gets named, overturned, and it gets replaced by that ridiculous concept called love. And we're supposed to nurture one another. And so in a church where priests and bishops understood that their authority was to be life-giving, as soon as someone like Steve came along, the question would be, uh, how do we enable this person to discover the fullness of life and how do we protect their capacity to flourish? And so you, you know, George Parker would have been confronted way back in the 70s and dealt with. Mm. And of course, that raises the other matter at hand here, which is that it's not just the abhorrence of what occurred um, to you, Steve, but it's also... The response, not just from the church through, you know, the, those intermediate years before the Royal Commission, but you've received um, intimidation, hate speech since then, haven't you, from, from people within the church? Absolutely. That's, again, one of the more frightening things about it um, is that since I did go public um, and, and I got a fair bit of media, a, a campaign started amongst people who obviously thought they were protecting the church I suppose I'm not sure what the I don't really understand the motivation um, text messages telephone calls um, we're going to kill you we're going to kill your kids if you don't shut up we'll kill your grandkids we know where your grandkids live they were in a state and they knew where they lived um, the wheel nuts on my car were undone I had bullets left on my front step my wife's car uh, had the brake fluid drained out of it um followed um again threatened windows broken and it wasn't just me that got that there was people um and again we were speaking earlier bishop peter stewart's acknowledged that that staff and survivors or other staff and survivors from within the anglican diocese of newcastle were threatened as well intimidation tactics so there was a core group of people somewhere in that organization that were prepared to do anything that needed to be done to protect the reputation of the church, which is terrifying to me anyway. It's unbelievable. Um, ha has it since the Royal Commission, have you felt, uh, I suppose, that the church maybe has started to just come to acknowledge the wrong that has been done and, and drop this ridiculous pretense or do you still feel it's an uphill battle on that front? I've been very encouraged um, by the response of, um, I can't speak for any other diocese, but within Newcastle and I think that the, 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 the um, an honest response started to occur under Brian Farron. Um, Brian was the first bishop to apologise to me um, I met with him and he um, issued a public apology. It was was put in the media and um, I was very grateful for that. Um, Greg Thompson was the same. I um, had a lot to do with Bishop Greg and um, his response was well documented. His own story was well documented. Um, 
but his response was very proactive and honest. And I think Peter Stewart has continued with that, and I'm very encouraged by what's actually happening with the church in Newcastle now. The professional standards um, department, for want of a better description, is, is quite strong. They've, they've, it's properly funded. They have counsellors available. They take accusations or, or reports very seriously. They have a, a, a very good reporting procedure now where matters are, without exception, reported to the police. Um, and, and I'm very encouraged by that, that, that the only disappointment for me personally is what it took mm. to get this to happen. You know, again, I, I, don't like, I don't like to use the word wasted, but it took me 40 years to even get an apology. And I shouldn't have had to spend 40 years <coughs> looking for that. That's not... I had, let's be honest, I had better things to do than than than, than to punch on with an organisation that was in the earlier years and and up till probably two thousand ten was simply determined to crush me, and they set about to do that um, because I I guess I dared challenge them, but again I'm very encouraged by what's happening now. Sue, so as a, a member, I guess of the clergy of the church, um, obviously in a different. Uh, strain of Anglicanism, I suppose, but but when you hear things like this right. and this black mark that exists on church authority, yeah. what's your initial response? Is it is it one of oh. deep shame? Is well, yeah, what is it? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, the first response is that I'm so sorry that little boy Steve was not protected as you should have been, and was not defended. And that then slightly older Steve wasn't listened to and, and, and that the, pe- the first people you told didn't leap into the fray to your defence at that point and to, and to stop things then and to, and, and to um, speak out and let justice happen. And that it did take 40 years, you know. Um, I'm so sorry for that little boy who was innocent and the church destroyed that. Um, the, you know... For me, I think there's a whole lot of things caught up in power structures. I think we've had when we had the genders wrong, you know, when we, you know, totally focused on male priesthood. Um, you know, I don't think myself that celibacy in, I, is the problem. Although I'd love to see that over, you know, I'd love to see the Catholic Church be more open to, to married clergy. But I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is the power issue that was there. And, um, you know, how we can find a way to have good structures and good governance. Um, but actually, because faith should increase our personal agency and responsibility. That's what, that's what a relationship with God does. It actually empowers us uh, to live out our, our, our God-given potential, which means that everyone should be looking even more closely, not, not allowing the, the head trip of the power structure um, to let, to to actually you know to to take on you know to, evil creeps in when when power becomes the trip you know but instead we have a personal agency that we're empowered to how do we live justly love you know honestly be authentic and open and transparent and i think that's the power of what you've done you've if it would take 40 years but of being that authentic and that transparent and saying because we're only as sick as our sickest secret and the more we open up and actually show what is there is the only chance we have of of healing you know for actually that to be exposed and the encouragement i think for other people um who have not shared their story you know the you know to to also to add mine to that to say that the supports are there um tell your story get the support um, because healing is is possible, and of course, um, you know it's it's great that we've got the structures we have these days, and like professional standards and the like. Um, but in the end, we're going to have to address some really deep theology um, of of relationship and of what God looks like, as we've often explored in this podcast. A lot of a lot of this stuff and. Uh, we try to deal with binaries and uh, dualisms and this is another form of binary really. You've got power relationship between priest and people, uh, men and 
children um, and all of that as we've said before shoots home to our idea of what the trinity looks like and if we you know we still live with this idea of the trinity with the father up the top and the son below the father as subordinate and that leads to the whole idea that that there are these power differentials that are built in they're like they're theologically justifiable we think that they are therefore the way things have to be and uh, one of the challenges for the church is to revisit its understanding of the trinity to go back to the times before the nicene creed when the trinity really became that hierarchical you know i believe in god the father i believe in jesus and i believe in the spirit it's sort of forms it into a hierarchy and the art of the time forms it into a, that sort of hierarchical structure if we go back to the time before that um, the images of the trinity are far more flat more circular uh, relational as we've said before the trinity is ex uh, modeled as a dance of three people equals dancing together making life together weaving life together and you know if we had that as our image of god as a dance that's life-giving and inviting other people into the dance uh, we would have a very different understanding of what church hierarchy was to be like we'd have a very different understanding of the relationship between men and women uh, what marriage was for um, what kids are for you know, because we still have in our culture, even though the secular culture is dominant, the secular culture still has this idea that the kids are somehow the property of the parent. And so out of, out of that sort of hierarchical understanding, um, people can make decisions for their children, like not to get them vaccinated, that the rest of the culture is supposed to put up with because they're the parent. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's an all-pervasive sort of uh, lack of understanding of how the faith would have us be as all equal and all part of this beautiful dance where we seek to give life to one another and that the true power is, is the power of life and the power of love. Um, which has nothing to do with secrecy, destruction of the other, control of the other, use of the other, and, and in fact does away with the whole concept of other altogether. And so that idea of you know, being the body of Christ, um, which I think is the idea that still appeals to Steve, you know, still, still knows that it, it needs to be expressed in community. So you know, I feel really deeply for you, Steve, with that draw, being drawn into that which is a life-giving community and at the same time the brutality of the community when it gets its understanding so wrong sort of sits there hammering back at you. And I think... I think the real lesson for the church out of the Royal Commission is, is not just about having structures in place to safeguard people, but actually building a culture where people are safeguarded because of how they're valued and because of that more life-giving way of looking at life. Well, Steve, I think one of the most heartbreaking parts of the story to me is you mentioned being a kid how great a place the church was to you, how much of a happy place it was to you, um, and how in awe you were of, of the, the rector who you mentioned. Um, do, do you feel like through what happened to you, something was robbed, something, I, I guess maybe an ability to participate, to, to buy in, to, to join into that was robbed from you and taken from you? Without question. And again, I, I can't speak of this strongly enough, the 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 value I put on um, those Sundays, and it, there was a, there was a really special thing for me about it. It made me feel that my family was important because the priest, the rector, came and ate with us. That was really a really special thing for for our family that he thought so highly of us that he would come and have Sunday lunch with us. And and Sunday lunch was a big deal. But, Old Pop had knocked the head off a chook and, and um, it, was, it was a pretty big spin. Um, 
and again, those formative years, sitting listening to those men talk about important men things, um, was just extraordinary for me. It was something that I really, really enjoyed and really looked forward to. And to have that taken away in such a, a brutal fashion um, was really soul-destroying. It was really confronting, really frightening. And I think that sense of betrayal is actually still with me. It's um, it's how something that was so good and so important and so important to my family um, was just destroyed so easily. And it really was destroyed. And it's something... and you know all these years later it's something that I actually miss you know that again Peter talks about the sense of community and 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 I'd actually miss that I we all want to belong to something and you know you sort of I found myself over many many years standing outside churches looking at them thinking should I shouldn't I do it you know is that where I belong and and it's a really 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 difficult decision and and you know there's this baggage attached that you know do I drag that through the door you know is it going to happen again and again you've got this um the the 10 year old boy in your head talking to you saying mate don't go in there because you know what's going to happen um and it's really hard to get past that and it's it's just really unfair I think that's that's why the depth of the betrayal is so great. You know, the position of trust of, of clergy people and it's such a, a privilege to minister in a spiritual community um, and for someone to use that particular role, which is so deep and personal and involves so much trust. And, and I guess I want to flag here that, you know, we know that sexual abuse um, happens in so many places you know and there's families and and their people are always to be encouraged to speak out regardless of what their story is but when we talk about sexual abuse in the church for me it's the double betrayal because it's it's your spiritual self too mm. that um that is wounded so so greatly and it is a position of such trust mm. the it's a, it's a, a double-edged sword for me. The, the abuse itself was horrendous enough. The response of the church, I think, was worse. And I've always... That it took so many years to get the church to acknowledge and deal with it, I think that, that was probably a, a greater betrayal to me. Because you grow up thinking that the church is a safe, kind, honest, yeah. loving place. And, As you should be able well, to. Yeah, yes. and you find out all yeah. of a sudden that it's not... And yes. then you're trying to process, is it all of them or is it just this yeah, guy? That's right. And then pretty quickly you find out, well, it must be all of them mm. because they know about it and they're not doing anything about it. Um, that's right. It's just a really, for, for a young man, you know, again, I was 14 by the time this had finished, um, to try and process that was just mm. really difficult. And again, formative years, the damage that it did to me, I, I don't think I've ever really been able to figure out. Um, it's just... Yeah, this massive betrayal. I've got to say, but um, I participated in this forum at Tiffany's Church last night. People are often confused with me, and I've had people say to me, and I've been a part of various survivor groups and what have you, who say, you must really hate the church. No, I don't. Never, I've never said that, and I never will. Um, I can't hold the church responsible for what happened that's not how it works for me anyway some people do I don't um, it's quite a simple process Parker was a criminal um, who happened to be a member of the church um, the bishops and various other lay people within the church who ignored my cries for help as it were um I don't think they're not representative of of the church. I've met some extraordinary people in dealing with the church. Um some extraordinarily kind, generous, helpful, compassionate people and I think my personal view is that the overwhelming majority of people within the church that I've dealt with are people of that ilk, again kind, generous, 
compassionate, loving people. And, and nothing I've seen will ever change my mind about that. That's quite remarkable because I think many would say you were entitled to hold a very different view about the church. <laughs> There's nothing to be gained. I could, you know, and, and, and sadly, I've watched other survivors who have wandered around in this horrible wilderness for decades, just gradually killing themselves. And and I've talked to people who whose hatred for the church, you could almost see it, and it's so destructive, um, and it's just really sad to watch. You've already had this awful thing happen to you in your childhood and you're perpetuating it in your adulthood by just killing yourself. I think we're better than that. Um, and, and I think the church is better than that. And I think it's a, it's a way of, of freedom that you're finding too. You know, you talk about in, in a different kind of scenario, people that have been imprisoned or maltreated in prisons or in times in, in other countries of, um, you know, uh, abusive regimes where they've um, been tortured or, you know, and, and they come out and they spend their life in hatred and yeah. imagining what they're going to do and get back at the guards and things that, you know, and yet that, that's a prison they can never get out of yeah. in that scenario. And, and you're only destroying yourself. Like, again, I, I, and I had to learn that really very difficult, like it was a very difficult process to get to that. You know, you could, you'd, um, and I, I can remember a case in uh, one night in point after the trial in 2001, I went up to the cathedral in Newcastle and I hated the place. Like it was just, it was a symbol of everything that was wrong in my life. I put at that doorstep and I knew there were people inside because I could hear the organ playing and I was bashing on the doors um, to try and get someone to open the door. And I think the first, if anyone had opened the door, I'd have punched them in the mouth. It was, I was that angry at the church and it was one of those it's almost you end up in one of those moments when you sit on the grass outside and you're sitting there crying thinking what am I doing like this is going to achieve nothing I'm kicking the wrong dog here um, and that's what you've got to learn to do like yeah get after the right people from a, a personal level Steve it, it's quite astounding how from something so damaging you have become seemingly such a generous kind open man um that you've been able to take you that you've been able to from the the absolute worst um it hasn't i guess derailed your your whole life in a pit of anger or anything like that How, what do you put that down to has it been therapy has it been you know i suppose the right supportive people around you has do, do you know what it's been um there's a combination my the the I'll go back again to to sitting under a tree listening to a good priest with my dad and my pop talking about social justice and I think that was well justice in general that was instilled into me and fairness I think you have to be fair um, I've always believed that you should be kind I've always believed that you should be compassionate um, I'm not a great fan of um, revenge like it doesn't work for me like I don't see the, any, any benefit I've always believed in the legal system I think that that will do its thing it, eventually it will do its thing um, and I've always believed that within the church um, that sooner or later that that justice will prevail and I, I've had that faith that that it might, might take a long time but sooner or later you know, it's sort of the attitude I've expressed to other survivors. You walk into a police station and, and, and you're not taken seriously by the police officer you talk to, well, go talk to another one. Like keep going, and then go, if that doesn't work, go talk to another one. And I've adopted the same attitude with the church. I talked to a bishop and got no satisfaction, so I'll wait till there's another one and I'll talk to him. Sooner or later, you'll find the right one. But as far as my attitude, it's not always been like that. Um, I've been through some very destructive years, self-destructive years, um, some very angry years. Um, my wife is um, probably a great influence in in, in turning that around. Um, but yeah, I just I just don't. Yeah, I'm, I really can't explain it. It's just just mm. just. Um, I think you've just got to be kind. 
I think you're also drawing attention to the fact that, that justice, we don't have justice. You have some faith in the justice system, but yet we I think we're justice is not something that exists. It's always aspirational, even with our best systems. It's always aspirational, and so you have to keep trying for it and keep trying mm. for it. It takes human agency to keep pursuing it, which is mm. actually what you've done. And also, like you earlier, you were delineating, and I guess this is part of um, the the health of what I'm, I'm hearing, you know, is that there's... There are people who are pedophiles and have found their way into a system. They found a place, a bit of a safe haven amongst their, you know, and, and it's, it's there where, where conditions are ripe. That, that's so I guess it's, it puts the folk, the lens back on how do we look at the conditions, what conditions are available, what protections are not in place that could mean that someone could take advantage of the way the system is. I think Newcastle is, is actually the perfect example um, of that perfect storm that that occurred, we had, and I'm not, I won't name people that haven't been convicted or, or acknowledged as pedophile. But we had the the Peter Rustins, George Parkers, um, Cooper, um, and others who were we now know, and um, Brother Jim and others that we now know were, were, were actively operating as pedophiles within the, within the Newcastle diocese, and then. I think some of the, the leadership appointments within the diocese actually facilitated that, that that allowed this to continue where perhaps a different decision about people in authority within the diocese might have changed the whole process. But I, my personal view is that Newcastle Diocese became a safe haven for people who would... And what you said is right, they're people... Who who were they, they were pedophiles before they were priests. They they didn't. It's not you become a priest, become a pedophile. Like you know, that's a really common misconception. Like these guys found their way into the church, as you said, because it was a place where they could operate with impunity, and 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 they were looked after. And and the evidence that we've seen in regard in relation to particularly Newcastle Diocese supports that that, that these people were protected. Yes. So we've seen this obviously in the news again um, at the start of this year with George Pell um, and there are a lot of comments from I guess people who are not of faith around that time saying things along the lines of this is why I'll never go back to the church, this is why I'm done with the church. That was probably the general sentiment that I certainly picked up on around that. Um, what, what's your response to that, that, that over this, this saga, most people are dismissing the church? Yeah. Do you yeah, think that's look, fair? Oh, I don't... I, I mean, you, I think the church is guilty of the greatest horrors, but also the greatest glories and, and mo of what human potential is capable of and what is most beautiful. Um, you know, I think that's been true through history. Um, you know, it's not an easy answer. You know, I, I wish I had a better answer. Um, I hang in the church myself because it's it's like um, you know, Peter says, for, "To where else would I go? There is um, there is this is where I found life, love, community, things that I know absolutely are true and transformative and healing." And so you you stay there and you keep doing one you know one Eucharist at a time, one you know conversation at a time, meeting people, gathering together, um, you know, following the way of love, self-giving, justice. You know, it's the only way I can go. But it is certainly true that religion, um, when it is, uh, it can be taken. Um, you know, as an idol, as a, as a, when when authority and power run rampant, you know, it puts a god gloss on actions that are horrific and evil. And Steve, with the royal commission now done, with the findings out there, what's what's the next step for you? Do you feel there is more to do um, on this for, from your front? That's a, that's, a, that's quite a relevant question. We did that forum last night at Reverend Tiff's church. And we walked back over to the house and I said to my wife, I'm tired. Like, I am really tired and I'm really over this. Um, I guess that's, to put that in context, I guess, with the show, the Christians Like Us show we did, the 7.30 thing, I've been interviewed 50 times in the last four weeks sort of thing by various media agencies and what have you, and I'm seriously tired. Um, but where to from here? Um, I won't stop speaking out. Um, 
I've told myself a few times over the years that I will and I know that I can't. Like, it's going to keep going. And um, I think I'm very fortunate that people are listening. Um, I'm very pleased that the church is listening. I, I see... I, you, you mentioned the Pell thing, and I and I read in social media. You read a lot of, um, well, you read a lot of rubbish. To be to be frank, um, you would think Pell was the only bloke ever charged with a child sex offence, and it, it, it's, it's actually with no disrespect to the, to the alleged victims or the victims of, of what Pell's been convicted of. Um, there's lots of us out there who have been thoroughly ignored for a long, long time, like and the media has basically told us we're not as important um well we are but the other thing i just need i see that the church has been through probably its darkest days i don't think there's anyone could dispute that the, the this but i see the church heading for its brightest days i think that um the church's response has been good um people's faith is being restored and I just think I personally think that the, that the church's best days are, are ahead of it now well I, we really appreciate you sharing your story one more time I can imagine it's exhausting to have to rehash it again and again and I can imagine part of you would like to just be able to close the, the book on that but it's incredibly powerful it's incredibly moving and we're very grateful thank you so much Steve thank you for having thank you Thank you, Steve. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.